studios of WMYU at 511 University Place. This is In-Depth on Sports. I am your host, Ian Colalucci, and folks, we've made it to our third show. It's hard to believe that we're already three three shows in. It's very I'm very excited that I get to continue to be with you all here on this Tuesday, November 16th. Quite a lot to go through as usual. Um, we're going to talk about a bunch of things here. Um, definitely going to go through some NFL stuff, talking through the last week of the season here. Some great stuff happening on Sunday there. Uh, we're also, of course, going to talk through uh, some of the recent MLB stuff, some awards, um, and of course, the ins and outs of the MLB, of the NBA and the NHL as we chug along throughout the beginning of the season. We also have a great guest for you today. We're going to have former uh, college receiver, a UC Davis receiver, John Shoemaker is going to be joining us today, and he is going to be diving into a, a topic that I think isn't really explored a lot, a lot on a lot of the uh, a lot of the sports syndicate shows, which is youth sports, which obviously, you know, if you're involved in sports, I got to feel like you probably played it when you were younger. I, I just feel like, you know, when you're, as, as a kid, you're you're playing, whether it's Little League, whether it's, you know, um, Pop Warner football, AAU basketball, whatever, whatever the case may be, uh, you know, you dealt with it uh, in your experiences. But I'm telling you, folks, things have changed quite a bit over the last um, 10, 15 years ago or so. And he's going to be talking to us, you know, about his own experiences with his own kids Growing up in California and then moving to New York, you know, being a big college standout, uh, signing an NFL contract, actually, um, and then moving on to, you know, being a parent and that whole aspect of, you know, with five kids. So we're going to be talking to him, uh, a lot of great insights from him. Uh, but first, we're going to go through the NFL, as we usually do uh, uh, in, our, in our startup stuff. And... I guess the first thing we should probably talk about, I mean, really, is where we stand, you know, after a very exciting week 10, I would say. Um, you know, we had, well, we had high hopes for, uh, in just in New York, we had high hopes for Mike White, and granted, they're playing the Bills. And and you know what, I'm not, I'm not expecting anything. They, the Bills are favored by two touchdowns. There's no reason to expect a win. But Mike White had Zach Wilson syndrome throwing all with all his turnovers. And, you know, it put to rest. It didn't. Well, we don't know. I mean, it, maybe it was a one game thing. We don't know if he's going to turn it around. We don't know what Robert Saleh is going to decide. But, I mean, this is uh, I think the mania is going to be dying out pretty quickly. Um, uh, and we'll see what direction the Jets want to move in. You also had a. Well, is is Tom Brady slumping? I mean, that's an interesting question to ask. I mean, you had Washington pretty handily take Tom Brady down. Uh, and now this is the second consecutive week where he has underperformed. Uh, a couple things to note with Brady's performance is that, well, the picks in the first quarter, I mean, two interceptions on these on drives that were barely that barely lasted three minutes. I mean, in his first drive, he had he got picked off at the 28. And then on the second drive, he gets picked off after a couple, you know, decent gains from Leonard Fournette. Uh, he throws to, tries to throw to Mike Evans and gets picked again. And, you know, Washington 
took advantage like any reasonable team should. I mean, they scored right after that. Um, they kicked a couple field goals. Brady sort of picked it up. I mean, they put it together a good effort to come back in the third and the fourth. Uh, but Washington sealed it with a great run by Antonio Gibson. And, you know, now if you're Tampa, you got to worry with New Orleans coming. Uh, I know they didn't pull it out against Tennessee. Uh, it was They kind of caught a break. Just in terms of how the NFC South performed, uh, Atlanta Atlanta looked completely lost out there today against Dallas. Uh, completely, you know, just shutting the door 43-3. to I mean, that's their largest uh, margin of victory since 2000 for Dallas. So, got to figure. I, I know the Falcons, you know, aren't really expecting to do anything this season, but... Uh, just an absolute blowout of massive proportions there. Um, but, you know, uh, thinking about sort of like the expectations that we have here for both a team like Tampa and a team like the Jets, who, you know, they have this sort of hope and momentum with Mike White that is eventually just turned away by a Bills team that, as we know, is arguably, I don't know if I want to say the favorite in the AFC, but... They're certainly one of the, I would say, top two teams there. I mean, you also, it was a bit of a bye week. I know uh, the teams we actually, the teams we were talking about last week, the Bears and the Giants, they didn't even play this week. And it'll be interesting. You have the Bears going up against Baltimore, but you also have the Giants going up against a slumping Tom Brady. Now, as we mentioned last week, Brady and the Giants have, of course, their unique history. And now with the slump, it'll be interesting. Is that going to play a factor? I know Brady is not the kind of guy who is going to, you know, sort of fall down a massive pit. He never has in his entire career. There's no reason to think that he would do so now. But the Giants are, you know, hopping off a hot win against the Raiders last week. And now they, they, well, obviously they're not going to be favorites, but I'll be interested to see what Vegas puts down for the line for the, for the game. I mean, it's, uh, if you look at um, a lot of the offensive rankings for both the Giants and Buccaneers, I mean, the, the Brady's, Brady's passing offense is still number one. His offense is third. Uh, it would makes it still makes sense that, you know, it would make sense that it's going to be a high favor for Tampa Bay, I would say at least 10 points. Uh, but if you remember last time, I mean, the Bucks only won by two. And again, I've said many times, Tom has difficulty with the Giants. Uh, there have been instances where he does. He's won. He wins. Look, he's won four out of five times. He does win. But three out of those four wins are these th- three four-point games. So I don't know. We're gonna uh, we're gonna dive into that. Obviously, just you know, in terms of you know where we see what we're gonna what we're gonna make some predictions this week and determine what's gonna happen in week eleven. But, you know, going around the NFL, we just talked about, you know, the uh, the Buccaneers' surprise, the Giants obviously on the bye, and the Jets' disappointment, and Dallas obviously taking advantage of a lackluster Atlanta effort. But I think, you know, some of the best games were late. The late games really showed, you know, that the late games were, you know, the ones to watch. Um, uh, I really feel, you know, well, we had our first tie. We had our first tie of the season with Detroit and Pittsburgh, and... Granted, it was not a good environment. If you watched Mason Rudolph and Jared Goff, very difficult time moving the ball. I mean, first drive of the game, Rudolph looks like they're going to have a nice run. It's going to be an easy day for him. They pull out a 7-0 lead. And then suddenly, offenses go silent. 
No one scores for the rest of the quarter. The, um, in the uh, in the second, the Lions put up a score and a field goal, and they started off the third with a touchdown. But Jared Goff, not even 100 yards, and Mason Rudolph around 150. And in a rainy atmosphere in Pittsburgh, it's not going to be easy. Sure, uh, but and I think if we look at, I don't. Th- it's it's important not to judge these teams based on this game. I really feel it's unfair to give Pittsburgh uh, this sort of reputation, like, oh, they, they let an 0-8 team tie them. I really feel like the weather is a bit of a factor there. Um, we also, you know, you have um, Mason Rudolph kind of thrust into a situation where he doesn't have all his weapons with him, and Detroit is just trying to muster a win just to get one on the on the docket, and obviously the closest they're getting now is a tie, which is kind of sad, but... Oh eight and one and five three and one. What what does that leave us? Well, it leaves us basically at the same place where we started, and you're gonna have to wait and see how teams like Baltimore and um how teams like Baltimore and Cincinnati do. I know Cincinnati on the bye this week, and then you know we have Baltimore coming up later. So we'll obviously get to that. And I said the four o'clock games were uh, I would say the better uh the better of the bunch. Uh, but I think really. It was really about, I would say, the Seattle-Green Bay game. That was really the highlight of the 425 slate. Um, You had Rodgers come in against a Seattle team who, besides Bobby Wagner, is still struggling on defense. Um, I wish it... It's it's sad to see how far they've gone, gone down from the Legion of Boom, but obviously, you know, this is how things happen. Things cycle out. It's not, you're not expecting, you know, this team, the Shermans, the Chancellors, and the Thomases of the world to stick around forever. And it's amazing. It's been seven, eight years since then. And, you know, that's what happens. It's a cycle in football. And, you know, you had, again, weather playing a factor here. You had a snowy atmosphere in Green Bay in for a lot of this game. And it's cert- you certainly saw that in the third with the back-to-back drives with picks from Russell Wilson and Aaron Rodgers, um, but I think, you know, really impressive performance by A.J. Dillon. I mean, the former, he's a, a, you know what's great is he's a B.C. guy, which in retrospect, think about the talent that Boston College football has brought to the table. I mean, if, if, you're, if you're an old guy, you know, you're thinking Doug Flutie, right? But besides that, there hasn't been a lot to, you know, write home about for Boston College football alumni, and now you have a very potent weapon for Aaron Rodgers on the offensive side of the ball. And, you know, let's go back through, you know, some of the running backs Aaron Rodgers has had over his tenure in Green Bay. It's interesting. If you go back through, you can think of a great performance by every single one of them. I mean, Eddie Lacy had a few years of pretty successful dominance at, at the running back position coming out of Alabama. And you have, you know, the Aaron Jones era and the Jamal Williams era and now in A.J. Dillon. And, I mean, you got to go a little farther back for um, for Ryan Grant. Uh, that was really early on. But, um, I mean, this is a situation where you he always has some formidable weapon on in the uh, in the backfield uh besides you know having always he's always had a great slew of wide receivers but again aj Dillon, fantastic performance oh great i would think one of the best plays in the game was the dump off rogers had to Dillon in the uh later in the game where 
you know, he's go, he moves down the field. It's about 10 yards. You think he, the Seattle's going to figure out a way to take him down, but he just keeps going. I mean, he just kind of tiptoes his way around defenders. And Bobby Wagner, clearly frustrated with how the game has been going, throws Dylan to the ground after a 50-yard gain. And, and you know what? I mean, I can't blame him. He has been there for the entirety of the Seahawks' rise all the way up to the Super Bowl appearances against New England and against Denver. And now he's at a point where you have an aging Russell Wilson, an offense that isn't fantastic that he, that he has behind him, and a defense that has been completely stripped for parts besides him. And, you know, Jamal Adams obviously not being the defensive secondary weapon that everyone thought he was going to be. And it puts Seattle in a very difficult spot in that aspect. So... A 17-0 win in the snow for Green Bay. Yeah, I mean, that's... I, I can't say it wasn't surprising. I mean, they're clearly the better team. But you would have thought with Russell Wilson coming back that they would have at least scored. But I just feel like he's not up to snuff for what he should be uh, in a at a point in the season where you have a West which has been p completely pulled away from with Arizona and Los Angeles. And, of course... Arizona, the resurgence of Carolina. Well, can we say it's Cam Newton? I, I don't know. I mean, he had eight passing yards and 16 rushing does. Granted, had a touchdown on uh, a passing touchdown and a rushing touchdown. But uh, I obviously think, you know, Christian McCaffrey is the factor here. But Arizona, is it the, the Kyler Murray absence? Uh, maybe so. I mean, you have Colt McCoy out there. And I mean, in the experiences... You've had Colt McCoy in... When Colt McCoy comes into these situations, it's generally because of, you know, there's an injury. And we saw it in Washington, and we saw it when he was in Cleveland. Um, it, it was never really... I mean, he came out. Uh, he had he got hurt uh, towards the end, in the middle of the game. And Kyler Murray wasn't ready because of his ankle. And now you have, you know, you're kind of gasping for air with your third-string quarterback... And Carolina took advantage. And, you know, you had a little momentum coming in. Cam coming back. Everyone's sort of excited. You have your former, you know, he brought you a Super Bowl. And now, you know, you have you have him score on his first drive. Um, and then he scores again. He throws a great pass to Robbie Anderson. And they were up 17-0. I mean, they were, think about this. They were up 23-0 uh, at the half. And then pulled away 31-3 against the best record in the NFL. Now, no quarterback, hard to say, you know, best record in the NFL, the team that was being out there. But Carolina, is this the time for them? Well, think about think about what happened in the NFC South today. You had Atlanta get blown out. You have New Orleans lose. And now you're in a position where if you have, obviously, Tampa Bay struggling a little bit, there's a chance here. This is a—I mean— there's definitely a shot for them to easily sneak into that big seven to that to that big playoff spot. Could they win the division? Possible. I don't think so. Again, I'm sticking with my prediction I made on our first episode, which is the majority of the division leaders back in October were going to win their respective divisions. I'm still sticking with that. I think three out of the four who were winning in October will hold those spots going ahead. But Carolina and New Orleans, New Orleans with the loss, I still think they're definitely a force to be reckoned with at five and four. Carolina at five and five. So we'll see. I mean, 
we're going to have to well, I think Carolina has to figure out are they a team that think about the team with Sam Darnold versus the team with Cam Newton is Sam Darnold going to we know he's likely out for the season and is Cam going to be the same Cam Newton we don't know and grant coming up in uh coming up for the Panthers in the next couple of weeks you have a schedule that somewhat favors them um it's not great it's not bad i mean you have the next two weeks with washington and miami and atlanta i mean that is that's prime time this is this is the time you have to go on the run here if you can pull out eight and five here you can set yourself up where you have to deal with buffalo tampa twice and new orleans in the last four weeks where this is you know prime time let's get these wins now so we can put ourselves in a good position when we have to play these difficult teams later on in the season. But obviously, I think the key the key mover this week is Carolina. You have losses in the NFC South, plus an easy couple of games ahead. Difficult at the end, but they can solidify a position, uh, I would say, to get one of those wildcard spots. It's very possible. And then, you know, you have the Philadelphia-Denver game where Denver, if you remember, remember Denver when, when they were in first in the AFC West? Uh, it seems like a lifetime ago now. But uh, a kind of Eagles team that is somewhat resurging over the last two weeks. Jalen Hurts showing, you know, his versatility. I was the great, um, his first touchdown pass in the first quarter to Devontae uh, Devante Smith. You know, you really felt that, you really felt that was an NFL kind of play. It was a great, it was a 36-yard pass. And when you see that out of a quarterback who is probably a little more reluctant to throw the ball downfield, and is more willing to stick with a option or run game based, you know, with Boston Scott. And, you know, he threw a couple, he threw a pick in there uh, in the third quarter. And I still think it was a great performance by him, but I also think this is attributable to a Denver team who now with Von Miller out to the Rams, uh, it's sort of like, okay, are we going to be this kind of team that sneaks into the playoffs because we had a good early start? We get a few wins at the end of the season, and then suddenly, oh, hey, wow, we're in the playoffs. But I don't see it that way. I mean, you have uh, you have L.A. and the Raiders and Kansas City in the final couple weeks of the season. Kansas City twice, for that matter. So I don't know. I think they had their chance early in the season, and they used it. They took advantage of the New York teams. They beat Jacksonville, and then they sort of fell back to what they should be. And I think that's the way it's going to go. I wouldn't be surprised, honestly. I mean, you have Detroit in there, but I wouldn't be surprised if this is a team that ends up with six wins. I mean, it's you had a Philadelphia team who, I mean, I know they won last week, but this is a, this is a team that isn't built for a playoff run any more than any other NFC week below 500 NFC team. They don't stand out like any of the other under 500 NFC teams. And then lastly, you know, you have uh, the, the Minnesota game, which I thought, was it a showcase for, wh- what did it tell us more? Did it tell us more about LA or did it tell us more about Minnesota? And I think it honestly, well, Justin Herbert, because of his remarkable, you know, as the sort of star young quarterback, besides Josh Allen, he is the sort of the young gun that everyone is probably most excited about in the NFL. And what did we see today from him? Well, we saw an okay performance. I mean, if we look at the stats here, I mean, it was not Justin Herbert's 
you know, it's not his best performance. I mean, 195 yards, touchdown, and a pick. And Kirk Cousins being Kirk Cousins, which is consistently finding Justin Jefferson and Adam Thielen. And when you have those kinds of weapons on the offensive side of the ball, plus Dalvin Cook, obviously, he's going to have an advantage just in when Justin when Justin Herbert has a bad day, the Chargers are kind of lost. I, I do, you have Austin Eckler who really hasn't been what Chargers fans were hoping for this year. And you know, if Herbert plays against a, an, a defense that doesn't know how to defend his quick passes to Keenan Allen and his and his little screens to Austin Eckler and using Mike Williams for the deep ball, and if he doesn't have that. The Chargers don't have enough oomph on the defensive side of the ball where they can defend them to defend the team that can prevent a bad performance. Meaning, like if Herbert performs poorly, the defense is not going to be able to shut down for a for a six or nine point or you know under ten points in a performance. So I think it tells us more about Minnesota being able. I, I think it tells us more about LA. Like I meant LA just like on the defensive side of the ball because of their weaknesses. I'm concerned. That in the West, you're going to have a team like Kansas City come up and take advantage of that. So, that's the NFL. And if you look at the standings, this is... It's going gonna, it's gonna to be closer than I thought it was going to be. New England's awesome against Cleveland this week. The the Now, four out of their last five taking a victory. They're 4-0 and on the road this year. Which, for a Bill Belichick team with Tom Brady... Okay, fine. With a big with a Bill Belichick team with Mac Jones and and scrapping for parts on the defensive side of the ball, I'm impressed. This is a team that has shades of New England from the past without Tom Brady. And that's something that people in New England haven't seen for a long time. And it begs the question, are they going to catch Buffalo? I don't think so. I think Buffalo's just in terms of schedule, it it makes it doesn't make sense that the, that the Patriots would be able to take advantage of a long term or the long term outlook for them. You have Tennessee and a game with the Bills, and you know you have the last two weeks where if a team like Buffalo does not take advantage of who they're going to be playing, the Patriots can do it because. If you look at who they have to deal with, you have the Jets at the end, you have the Falcons at the end, you have Carolina, who is surging, but is a team that they should probably beat, and you have New England twice. So it comes down to those last two weeks of this, those those uh, those matchups in in December, as well as both teams taking advantage of their poor competition at the end of the season. Obviously, a very exciting week. That's the outlook there, and now we move we move to baseball, where. This is, uh, it's award season for me, and it's an underrated time of year if you're a baseball fan, because you have sort of the free agency lying in the background, but no one's really signing yet. So what you're left with is a good award season, which we're going to be making some predictions here. Uh, We're going to do a little section here. We're going to make some awards predictions, and we're also going to talk about who we think is going to pull out the games in week 11 this week in the NFL. And, you know, we have, we have gold gloves, we have, um... Silver Sluggers announced we had Correa winning the Platinum Glove in the American League and Arenado in the National League. Arenado has won the Platinum Glove five years in a row. Personally, I really don't think he was deserving this year. I think there were a lot of candidates in the National League that were overlooked just because of Nolan's prowess at third base, which is still phenomenal, but he is not at the top. This is not Nolan Arenado from 2018. His defensive metrics aren't as good as what they were. It's it's just a fact. He doesn't 
hold up in a lot of other statistics that people are looking at. And if you go through just his defensive runs saved over the last five years, you, you can see that it's not, I mean, let, let's, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it here. I mean, 2016, 2016, he has third, he goes from 13 to 17 to 12 to 24. You have, you, you're, he's deserving. 2019, his best year, ultimate zone rating of 10, odds above average 21. This year, he had six defensive runs saved. And for someone who is supposedly the best fielder in the National League, there are many other people I would have could have easily picked for the Platinum Glove this year. I think two, well, first, I think you got to look a little bit at someone like Colton Wong, who led his position, who was at second base 13 outs above average. And I think also Tyler O'Neill. I mean, 12 and 12 defensive runs saved in 2021. Harrison Bader also, the Cardinals alone, definitely deserving of that team award. But those three alone could have easily gotten my vote for Defensive Player of the Year in the National League. And to give it to someone like Arenado just makes it seem like they're phoning it in, honestly. I think there are way more deserving candidates that needed to be looked at and I, th I think failed in their in their awarding for this position in the National League. I think Correa was definitely deserving in the American League. He won it over at shortstop for the Astros. Great in the postseason. Fantastic choice for the award. All the metrics back it up. Arenado does not. But I digress because we got to look at some of the big awards coming up in the next week. We've got Rookie of the Year, Cy Young, and of course, MVP. Now, MVP, unfortunately, in the American League, you have Otani, and just because of the pitching-hitting combo that he gives, the idea that he went 9-2, and two, well, the wins, wins don't matter. Let's, let's face it. That's not really what I'm looking at. He was an effective, he was above, he was an above-average pitcher in the American League, and he hit 50, almost 50 home runs. I mean, come on. If you're a writer, you have to just say, doing that on both sides of the ball, it's unheard of. We haven't really gotten into how amazing Shohei Otani is is both for Major League Baseball and just as a player in general to do what he is doing at sort of what I believe is talent-wise, recent baseball is the peak of that. You have guys throwing harder than ever before, hitting the ball harder than ever before, maybe the steroid era in terms of hitting is an exception, but in terms of the abilities out there, this man is doing un things that are unheard of. No one ever thought this was possible that someone at the major league level could do this and he's doing it and he will win the Mer the American League MVP and it's a shame because of how well Vladimir Guerrero did this season one of the best offensive seasons in the American League since you could argue Trout in his MVP campaign back in 2019 uh maybe you could say uh one of the Mookie, Mookie Betts's MVP year just because of his all-around performance but on the offensive side of the ball just pure hitting you could argue Guerrero's performance this year is one of the best over the last five or ten years but you have to give it to Otani it's a shame and I'm sure if you when we get the final vote count at the end of the week I think that there will be writers who are unwilling to give the award to Otani. I think, will we get 31st place votes for Shohei Otani? It's a good question. I think there's going to be at least one or two. I don't know if he's going to be unanimous, but I think there's going to be one or two maybe that will give Vlad the spot. It, it's, I, I, I'm saying that out loud actually sounds like I'm, I'm concerned that I'm saying that, but I think there might be one person out there 
who's uh, who is going to be unwilling to do that. I could easily see him going 30, but I'm feeling more likely that it's going to be 29. We're going to have to see, but obviously Otani will win the award in the American League. But what I think is way more intriguing is the National League because you have three finalists out there. Let's let's look. We got obviously we have Juan Soto, we have Fernando Tatis Jr., and we have Bryce Harper. And the fact that Tatis didn't play a whole season is a shame because I really think that he probably was in a he was in a very good position before his injury to just run away with it because of the power numbers, the defensive metrics, his base running ability. As a most valuable player award, he fits in that category well. But I think now, because of that, it's down to Soto and Harper. And on the offensive side of the ball, I think I give the slight edge to Soto. If you look at some of the things that Juan Soto does just on this Nationals roster, arguably unprotected in this lineup, it, and also at 23, mind you, it is remarkable to see that, well, one, 145 walks is Barry Bonds-esque. And for someone who in a lot at just 22 to be doing this is unheard of. And it makes it more likely that if I had a vote, I would give it to Soto just because he tops out in these in many categories where someone at his age shouldn't be doing this. It's more established frontier guys, but guys like Guerrero and Soto have really outperformed everyone this year just in terms of getting on base and being productive in driving and runs and hitting extra base hits. Juan Soto's OPS plus, if you don't know what that is, it is a statistic that measures uh, his ability, a player's ability to both get on base and hit for extra bases adjusted to the player's ballpark that they play in. So someone like Juan Soto, who plays in Nationals Park, which is a somewhat somewhat of a pitcher's park, his numbers are adjusted so that it reflects how good he's doing despite the obstacles against him. And in his case, he did not lead the league. He had 100 at 175, which is pretty kind of remarkable considering that at 175, you're not leading the league. Bryce Harper led the league at 179. Granted, Soto drew more walks. He had... Uh, he uh, he had 45 more walks than Harper this season. But, you know, Harper, if you look at Harper's numbers as an established major league veteran who now in his third, coming out of his third season in Philadelphia, had a pretty solid 2020 campaign in the shortened season. Uh, I know purists like to look at batting average hitting just 268. Uh, if you look at it a little closer, OPS plus of 158, very high uh, in a shortened season, a war of two in a year. Where it's if let, let's prorate it out, if it's sixty to one sixty-two, that's about a six or six and a half win season, which is very high. Isolated power two seventy, high numbers for someone who was dismissed by a lot of people uh, after a somewhat good season in Philly in his first year, but not necessarily the Bryce Harper of his twenty fifteen MVP campaign. And this season, he really turned it around just in terms of his ability to produce in situations that were necessary for him for a Phillies team that underperformed this year. He was successful in uh he drove in 84 runs, uh 42 doubles which led the league, 150 hits. Uh, OPS of 1.044, that's on-base plus slugging percentage, led the league in slugging. Um, definitely very exciting when you see someone like Harper turn it around like this. But I don't know what writers are thinking. Personally, if I had to cast a vote, I would probably give mine to Soto just because of his 
when they say most valuable player, I think value to an organization. And for me, Juan Soto is the perfect personification of value to an organization because of his ability on the offensive side of the ball. If Juan Soto is not on this Nationals team, th this is a team that compares to the 20, 2003 Tigers. Now, the 2003 Tigers notoriously won 43 games in an 162-game season, which is god-awful. But it was, a, it was a horrible team made up of rookies who were who weren't who didn't live up to their potential and veterans who uh, on the pitching staff who just completely imploded but i would give my vote to soto just because of his value to his team it is in my opinion more than the value harper brings at to the phillies in this season you have you know he, he has you have, on the offensive side you have real muto you have mccutcheon you have reese hoskins uh this is not a Phillies team that is really strapped and the value that Harper could bring to that organization is not that of what Soto could bring to the organization. So that's why I would give it to Soto. But if you look at the Vegas odds for NL MVP, it's interesting to see that, the, well, one, they're looking at it as a very close race. I mean, uh, you have uh, Harper is the favorite, 275 to 325 right now, but it's interesting how it went throughout the season. Um, if you look, if you remember when Degrom was in there, you had him as a potential threat just because of his his pitching statistics were unheard of through June until he got hurt. And then once you got to the end of the year, he Soto really surged at the end of the season. But I think he's got a reasonable shot. I don't. I think Harp. I think the writers will eventually will give it to Harper. I think they're gonna look a little. I think they're gonna see his all-around ability compared to Soto's more offensive-centered approach. But I think his but I think Soto's offensive-centered approach compared to Harper's all-around abilities, I think Soto's offense outweighs Harper's all-around skills. And that's why I would give my vote to Soto. But I think the writers are going to give it to Harper. We're going to have to see. But I think also uh, you have AL MVP, which is pretty much wrapped up. NL, we're going to be that close race. We're going to watch and see Soto or Harper. I think they're going to give it to Harper. I would give my vote to Soto. But I think an interesting thing to look at is the Cy Young Award races this year. Because in the American League, you have sort of a – there was no dominance. I mean, you have Robbie Ray and you have Garrett Cole and you have Lance Lynn as your finalist. And if you watch the Yankees throughout the season, Garrett Cole was – well, the highlight of his season for me was the start against the Astros, his complete game shutout in a game that the Yankees coming after a, I believe this was the game after Chad Green blew it in the, in the, uh, in, in the ninth inning. They were up by five and they lost eight to seven. I believe this was the case. But, and then coming off the next day, Cole puts the shutout uh, and the Yankees managed to win the game. Complete game, mind you, which is obviously rare in this day and age. And you, those kinds of performances, that's Cy Young, that's Cy Young worthy. But as you know, the Cy Young is only based on the regular season. And if you looked at Cole in the postseason, that one start, it would obviously, you know, sway your opinion. But if we're looking in the regular season, it's very close between him and Robbie Ray. Now, Cole was a little streakier. There were times, you know, there were a lot of things about the sticky stuff. Was that affecting him? Uh, we know after they cracked down on it, his numbers went down. A lot of pitchers' numbers went down as, as well. But uh, a lot of people said, you know, after they revealed that, you know, they were taking away the substances or they were cracking down on substances, Cole was an above, barely an above average pitcher, maybe an average or above average pitcher. And then you had a guy like Robbie Ray who remained relatively consistent and quite remarkably is a free agent this season. 
And I'll be interested to see what teams, uh, if Toronto is going to be willing to re-sign him, given his age and his injury history. We'll have to see. I mean, you know, this is a guy, Ray back in, uh, was a, you know, lefty in Arizona, good strikeout guy, really pulled it all together this year. Uh, and now, you know, in terms of the Cy Young, if you look at the stats between, I think Lance Lynn, good season, did not really, uh, for me, does not have the numbers to compete against a Cole or a Ray. But for me, you know, I look, when I'm looking at a, at a, at a case for MVP, I'm looking at, you know, one was the was their consistent all-around performance throughout the season, and obviously the advantage goes to Ray. And two, given the external factors, you know, if we look at expected FIP and we look at I, I'm well, I'm personally a sabermetric guy. I like to look at these numbers that are more that give a clearer picture of what's going on. Again, Ray holds the advantage. Ray holds the advantage in most categories. I think Cole's a better gamer, but you know, if we, again. Go to the odds. I mean, it's, again, it's going to be close. It's the same sort of a, well, also, fun thing to note, if you look at ESPN's Cy Young predictor, they have Liam Hendricks as the favorite, which one, I mean, I think they have to rethink their metrics. I mean, look at, and the, also in the NL, they have Julio Urias as the favorite. Congratulations, you won 20 games for a team that won 106 games. The win does not matter in that sense. He's pitching for a good team. It's I don't want to get into, you know, why the win is a ridiculous statistic, but bottom line, I think their Cy Young predictor is ridiculous. If you ever want to know who's actually going to be uh, going to be contenders here, look at obviously the odds on it. I think Ray has the edge, but we're going to have to see. Uh, I think he is favored in he is favored in the um, in the Cy Young, but Cole a close second. So uh, personally, I would give it to Ray, and I think it's going to be Ray. And in the National League, you have Corbin Burns, Zach Wheeler and Max Scherzer. And, you know, when you look at those three guys, the name that jumps out, of course, is Scherzer because, you know, he is, if you're a casual baseball fan, Max Scherzer is sort of the, you know, the guy who everybody knows just because of his, you know, World Series appearances with Detroit and with Washington. And, you know, his, obviously, you know, the the, the different eye color, you know, he has sort of the marquee value that, you know, a National League signing award winner has. He's won a few before. I mean, but I think if you look at it, if you look at who the most dominant pitcher in the National League was, it's Corbin Burns. I mean, Brewers baseball has sort of been put, kind of pushed to the side, but you had the one-two punch of Burns and Brandon Woodruff was probably... I would say the best one-two punch. You could give it maybe to Bueller and Scherzer at the after the trade deadline, but I really believe the Burns Woodruff combination underrated because of their both ridiculously high strikeout rates. Burns is devastating sinker, and uh, Woodruff just effective slider combination. And Woodruff with his slider, both of their combinations were excellent at generating strikeouts. They were dominant ground ball pitchers. These are guys who were both sabermetric darlings and easily some of the most effective pitchers at getting out. And if you compare Burns to Scherzer, I think Wheeler's sort of relegated to the back a little bit. I don't think he's going to get it. But, you know, if you look, compare those two, it's very close. And you know what? Right, Knowing how the writers think, it's more likely they will give it to Scherzer. But in all honesty, Burns was more dominant. And it's sad to think... That, you know, in an antiquated, the antiquated way which this is done, it's going to, it favors someone like Scherzer just because a lot of the traditional metrics favor him more. 
You know, he has more wins. Uh, I think ERA actually burns maybe slightly ahead, but it, it's going to make seem, make Scherzer seem like a better pitcher. But Burns, in reality, was. He generated more out, he, he generated outs more effectively than Scherzer did. And I hope the writers see it that way. I would hope they give it to Burns. I think he's probably a little bit more deserving, but it's more likely they would give it to Scherzer. Marquee value still holds in the MLB awards circuit. I mean, if you go back the last, I mean, the first example that comes to mind where marquee value didn't hold was in a situation where you had Justin Morneau and Derek Jeter back in 2006. It was, I would say, Jeter's best chance to win an MVP. And Morneau had a great season. And he and I would say he probably deserved to win MVP that year. It was very close, though. Jeter, Jeter, I, I would say maybe 50-50 on who could win that award. But you would think it would be Jeter just because of his abilities out there. And just, you know, he was an 11-year vet at the time. Morneau, very young at this point, a few years in the league. They gave it to Morneau. And I, it's sort of like an exception that comes into my head with this uh, example. But, you know, I'll be interested to see if in this case you give it to someone like Burns, even though it's really close. I would think if there's a distance, if there's a big enough distance, sure, they'll give it to the player who is more deserving. But if it's very close, it goes to the marquee value guy. And, you know, when we were back in May, we had... It was DeGrom. We had DeGrom maybe for the MVP, but obviously he got hurt. And now you're left with someone like Burns and Scherzer. And Burns obviously doesn't hold the marquee value, and Scherzer does. And obviously I think Wheeler, not as much as well, but I think also I think he's sort of relegated as sort of number three here. But I think I would give it to Bur- uh, It's judging From what I'm saying here, you can clearly tell, I would give it to Burns, but I think it's going to be Scherzer. I think it's going to be another tight one. But I think they are ultimately going to give it to Scherzer. But we're going to have to see a fantastic MLB awards season on the slate. But we have a guest to get to. And he's going to be talking youth sports. And I'm really excited to share with you guys my talk with John Shoemaker. Who really went into sort of why youth sports have changed so much over the last few years. And uh, well, I th- I'm going to let the word speak for himself. So we'll be right back. But next up, John Shoemaker talking youth sports. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. And this week, uh, it is guest number two. And joining us this week, we have one of the University of California Davis's greatest all-time receivers. He is a experienced youth sports expert. We're going to be talking to him today about a variety of things, including his upbringing, a lot of his experiences uh, playing football in high school, going into college, as well as now his own experiences with five kids of his own going through the same things he went through as a kid. And joining us today, Mr. John Schumacher. John, how you doing, my friend? Thank you, Ian. Happy to be here. So uh, we're going to talk about a few things, but we're going to start, we're going to go back a little bit. We're going back around, you know, 30, 40 years or so, back to your high school days, back to growing up in California. Why don't you just give us a little bit of a taste of, you know, when you were, you know, going, in the, going through the whole process of trying to go to school, what was that like? What was it like growing up in sort of a not as competitive environment as what you're seeing now, but why don't you talk a little bit about that? That's a good place to start. So I grew up in Central Valley, California. Uh, I think one of the bigger differences in that era versus growing up now with my kids here in Rye, New York, is uh, more of an em- emphasis on playing multiple sports. And you know, you had seasons, and in those seasons, you played a certain sport, um, whether it be in the fall, it was football; in the winter, 
it was basketball and in the spring and in California it was more baseball um, obviously right. on the Northeast it's lacrosse but there was never you know basketball in the fall or basketball in the spring it was basketball exclusively in really? the winter so I, and I agree with you I think the kind of competitiveness amongst not only the programs and the parents and, and to a lesser degree sometimes the kids um, it probably wasn't as cutthroat in terms of winning and losing it right. was more about just competing, having fun, and uh, going to pizza afterwards. Seems like a lot has changed over the uh, over the last few years or so. Uh, I got to imagine, though, that when you sort of jumped into the college scene, that changed a little bit for you, I would imagine. I mean, uh, you played at California Davis, uh, if I'm correct, and, I mean, it's uh, it's D1. Is, there, is it D1, correct? Yes. Okay, so it really... Uh, I, I, it's probably a little less recognizable, but was that a big culture shock for you? Did you feel like that sort of changed your whole mindset on what sports could be for you? Yeah, I think at that time, when you go from high school to college, it becomes more of, um, I wouldn't say a job, but it's part of your everyday lifestyle. Um, mm. I think just to kind of go, I think maybe we're gonna go next is, I think that is leaked down now, where I see it more from, you know, even in high school, where you treat your sport, and that sport might be in a year, uh, you play it you know, all year, as is basically like you were in college 25 years ago. Mm. I, don't, I don't necessarily think that's a good thing, <laughs> but it is what it is. Um, but yeah, back when I grew up and went to college, the, the light switch had to switch, and, and that was, yeah. this is basically a job now, mm. just as it is going to school. Well, I mean, I figured, you know, it was four years there and then uh, you moved, uh, I know you uh, attempted an NFL spot and then you moved on to, you know, a regular suburban lifestyle. And I got to think that now with your own kids, I mean, so first, first let me ask you, how many hours a week do you spend going to practices, games in a seven day span? What would you uh, estimate on that? Well, the easiest one is the weekend and usually we wake up around seven let's call it, and our first practice game starts at eight, and we usually get home around four or five. Um, and I think you could say the same thing about Sunday. So, you know, both of those days are about the same. Um, and then it's probably two to three hours every weekday. Because with five kids, all of which play sports, I mean, it's just, it's a constant management of not only practices, but games. And, and trying to make as many games as possible in order to kind of mentally and, and, and also give a little cheering to, to your kids. But yeah. it's hard because you can't get to all of them. Right. Uh, I mean, uh, it's, it's got to be difficult. I mean, it's, uh, it's, you said seven to five, so that's 10 hours, that's 20, that's 35 hours a week. I mean, that's, that's a job for some people. Do, do you see it as a job or is it more just an enjoyable experience, you know, getting to watch your kids out there? Oh, I love it. I mean, it's the best job you could have. I mean, I think you know me, maybe the listeners know, but I even bought a Mercedes Sprinter and outfitted the inside so we could in comfort, you know, travel to all the sporting events knowing basically every weekend was going to be traveling, um, not only locally, but sometimes regionally. Um, mm -hmm. And it's been, you know, if, if you're a competitive guy and played sports in high school, college, whatever, this is what you would want, I would assume, um, as a parent. I gotta gotta think as a parent it's pretty rewarding it's a pretty rewarding feeling i would think and you know uh we talked about you know how much time you spend but 
would you say uh, you said uh, football, lacrosse? Those are the two. I would say the big ones you're uh, you're uh, you watch on a regular basis on the weekends with your kids. Football, lacrosse, and basketball. I think those are the big three. Okay, and you know, I got to figure. Well, we're in the Northeast, obviously. You grew up in California. You said that I think lacrosse was a little different for you coming into the Northeast. It's more of a presence. Uh, you know, you watch it more often. I don't think a lot of our listeners know a ton about it. Why don't you talk a little bit about, you know, what is that like here? I mean, it's certainly a culture that penetrates pretty deep in a lot of families, but not necessarily, you know, uh, is, you know, well known around the United States. Uh, do you think it's more centralized here? And if so, you know, why don't you talk a little bit about your experiences dealing with it as a parent and, you know, seeing the culture for yourself? Right. I was, to uh, be honest with you, I was a little bit skeptical initially with my boys starting to play lacrosse because I just thought of it as, you know, old money, you know, XYZ went to some XYZ Ivy school and he was a captain 25 years ago. And, you know, those are the families that, you know, really focus on lacrosse. What I found out is it's an amazing sport. I, I, it's one of the, I think one of the coolest sports to watch as a parent because it, it kind of is a cross between, I, I guess, soccer, football, and basketball. Okay. Of the, the, you know, there's the physicality of it, which is, is actually pretty extreme at points. I mean, given you have a stick, you can use it almost as a club legally <laughs> in, in some cases. Um, and it's just fast paced and it's it's there's a lot of rules it, it, it also kind of has a higher barrier to entry I think to really be you know to excel in it because you have to have stick skills and you, you can't just walk in and over the course of a couple of weeks be a quote-unquote star I mean you have to be able to practice and and, and yeah and then it's been a, a delightful experience I think all three of my boys they, they enjoy it probably if not it's either that or football um, and you know, it, it it's one of those sports I think also where you look as a parent, and you kind of think to yourself, okay, is there some entry to college potentially? And it's mm-hmm. it, it's like it's you know not lost on a lot of parents that all the good colleges generally have a, a good lacrosse program. Right. I'm not sure how that happened, but that's that's just the way. <laughs> yeah, it is. yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. Go go ahead. We'll uh, continue on there. I mean, uh, go ahead. well, I just think it's it's. You know, if you're going to play football coming out of Rye and you're going to be competing against kids from California, Texas, in the South, where they play it year round, it can be a little bit more difficult. Whereas if you're playing lacrosse, this, you know, here in the tri-state area, Long Island, I mean, it is still the the hotbed, Um, you know, and that's changing. Your, Your point of, you know... Is it just a local sport here now? No way. Like we go to the, the, the national tournaments now for lacrosse and you're seeing great teams from the South. You're seeing Texas, you're seeing California. And those athletes that I think are you, you know endemic to that area are starting to push into lacrosse and they're getting the practices that they need and the coaches that are also filtering out into those areas. And, and you know, it's becoming a national sport. Um, okay. So definitely. Okay, I mean, uh, pers- uh, in my experience, I mean, I, I I grew up in Greenwich and I saw it firsthand. I'm sure you know, being a parent here, I mean, I'm sure you see it. Uh, but are there concerns? Do you? I mean, well, first let's talk about you know some positives here. I mean, for college, do you really see it as you know a potential you know gateway? Do you think a lot of parents see it as a gateway? Are they more interested in playing or are they more interested in going to school for it? 
Oh, I think they're interested in playing, and I think the there there is a high level of interest to get into college, uh, maybe through that portal of being a lacrosse player. You know, they, there's not a huge scholarship per se pool for lacrosse players, but <laughs> there is a, a ability to potentially uh, gain entry, and and then you pay you know whatever the tuition is, but they can get you into the school as being the lacrosse coach if they really like you. Um, and like I said, most of these schools are generally the higher end tier schools. Right. Um, so it has that appeal to it. Um, and certainly the program directors at all the club lacrosse teams, they're well aware of this and they use that also as a mark, <laughs> a potential marketing tool. I could imagine. And they're good at that. Yeah. Uh, I, you know what? And I would say lacrosse is probably one of the best. They capitalize it the most uh, on it. The most, I feel like, you know, when you're dealing with a demographic that sort of panders to you know going to really good schools i mean like that's a really good marketing tool for kids who want to you know for parents really who want to see their kids go forward with that so we're gonna uh ask you a few final questions here uh first uh you know you're in rye now so you went from california to a i would say one of the top areas in the country just in terms of you know success uh even uh sports i would say but would you say that's changed your perspective on, you know, on playing sports? Do you think that sort of the wealth factor and, you know, the way that money can sort of influence how people look at sports, do you think that's changed your perspective a little bit? Uh, do you feel, you know, has your life, has your whole view on, you know, going out there and just playing sports for a good time, has that changed for you? It hasn't changed for me. I definitely see some parents that I think get caught up a little bit more in the short term wins and don't see the long or even the midterm kind of value of what you're really doing. Um, and you're right, money can cause a lot of kind of impressions to think that, you know, I can just buy my way or pay my way through, you know, extra practices and, um, you know, extra clinics and so forth. And I don't really know if that's what you want for the burnout factor and mm. for the mid to long term value for why you're playing youth sports. So it's a fine line, I think. You know, you mentioned lacrosse. Lacrosse, like you, you said, has the most money, I would say, per capita. Pretty obviously yeah. when I sit on the sidelines and watch these games. So, you know, it's it's not for lack of money to see how good little Johnny is. It, 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 it's also got to come from little Johnny and his heart and also his innate ability. But you don't want to go too hard too fast because mm. I've seen it, you know, already with one of my oldest is eight years old or in eighth grade. And you can kind of see sometimes the kids, they've... They were stars early, and now they're not as 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 is great, and they're already getting burned out. And you say to yourself, "Dude, you're only in eighth grade. Like, there's a long time to go here." But it's so intense early that even kind of not being at the top of the mountain um, can influence them mentally, and it, you don't really want to see that at right. that age. Well, I certainly can imagine your experiences have influenced you. And lastly, you know, we're going to talk about so coaching experience you said you had you know you coach kids teams i mean you saw it i mean you're you're directing i've seen directing basketball directing football you know from from your own perspective do you feel rewarded by that or do you feel uh is it more of a job for you is it just to see your kids play what what's what sort of coaching what is coaching giving you a new perspective on does that change your, the way you look at youth sports and how it you know kids can progress over their life you know i think sports is the best um I, I would not have it any other way. And I think one of the things I try to do from a coaching perspective is every treat every kid like you're, they are your own kid. And that way 
you know, you can get the most value out of it. And I, I try to do that because sometimes I see coaches that don't quite do it that way and they have their favorites, whether it's their own or others, and it's not as objective um, because of other politics. And, you know, that is what it is. It's not, it's the same here as it is in California there, but you know, if you can, you know, be as balanced as you can be, and every kid gets better from whatever baseline they start at the beginning of the year, there's no better feeling as a coach to see that. Even if it's the lowest, you know, kid on the totem pole on your team, and all of a sudden, if they can, you know, get have a smile on their face at the last game of the, the year, I mean, that's, that's the best feeling. I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, that, that rewarding feeling, you know, when you've made an impact or, you know, they've done something successful because of something you might have said or a positive influence, that's got to be a great feeling to have. Uh, so, John, thanks for the time. I really appreciate that. And before we go, we're going to ask you sort of, a, sort of a in, uh, an instinct question. Uh, we've asked some of our viewer, uh, viewers this. Uh, if you could change one thing about the industry, one thing that you think something in youth sports needs to be done to you know, make it better for kids who enjoy it or something along those lines, what would you say should be changed in the industry to make it better for everybody? I think you should have 20% of the games where there's no parents allowed. Really? And you want to elaborate on that? Explain why? Or uh, you're just going to leave it with that? Well, I think it would help from the coaching standpoint and because they can get influenced um, maybe rightly or wrongly from the parents and also from the kids. I mean, they, they take a lot of sometimes undue pressure from the parents on the sideline, likely their own. So I just think the kids, you know, and the coach in a cocoon by themselves, they might learn a lot just without that um, external kind of pressure. And, you know, and I. I think it might build at the end a better team and a better experience for the kid. Um, and it certainly would be a, a different experience. Uh. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much. Uh, we really enjoyed having you on. And I'm sure our listeners are going to get a quite an interesting perspective on your take. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Ian.